How can we think about the Oedipus complex today, in a contemporary society beset by a crisis of ideals and the emergence of new forms of sexuality? Neurosis has not disappeared, but borderline states have become a prevalent adaptive mode in a world lacking solid authority figures and sinking into symbolic misery. In this episode, François Richard is proposing his concept of the distorted Oedipus complex. Beginning with theoretical conceptions of Freud and then of his successors, he is suggesting that a specific form of the infantile Oedipus complex, persisting in adolescents and adults, gives us a better understanding of borderline patients. François Richard is a psychoanalyst and a member of the Paris Psychoanalytical Society. He is a psychoanalyst in private practice in Paris and has worked for many years in various medical and psychological institutions. As a clinical psychologist, he has also studied social sciences, which broadens his reflection on the impact of social factors on individual psychology. Professor of psychopathology at the Université Paris-Cité, he has directed numerous theses and colloquium and at what time edited the journal Adolescence. He is the author of several books in French that have been subject of debates, including Le Processus de Subjectivation à l'Adolescence, 2001, L'Actuel Malaise dans la Culture, 2011 and Le Surmoi Perverti. His current research focuses on the current crisis of civilization, the processes of sublimation, particularly in literature, sexual polymorphism, borderline states, and the relationship between frame and counter-transference in the face of what he proposes to think of as a structurally deformed Oedipus complex. I am Julia Flora Libert with Talks on Psychoanalysis, the podcast devoted to current topics on psychoanalysis worldwide, featuring the voices of the original authors. This podcast series, published by the International Psychoanalytical Association, is part of the activities of the IPA Communication Committee and is produced by the IPA Podcast Editorial Team. Head of the Podcast Editorial Team is Gaetano Pellegrini. To redaction and post-production, Massimiliano Guerrieri. To stay informed about the latest podcast releases, please sign up today. Dear friends and colleagues, I will tell you about what I call deformed Oedipus, a specific form of the residual infantile Oedipus that persists in adolescents and adults, which allows us to better understand borderline states.
Before, a few words on the discontent in civilization following from my 2011 book, L'actuel malaise dans la culture, the current in ease in culture. In today's world, borderline states seems to be the prevalent kind of adaptive functioning, a way of surviving and living that make us use of a variety of complex subjectivation modes. While neurosis is still with us, it is now seen as being largely composed of the pent-up libidinal panic that is revealed and even showcased by the borderline state. Many subjects settle down in the border or limit, neither in transgression nor in normality. They over in a frail link with reality. The sociocultural environment, its idols weakened by a structural crisis of authority, sees this as a natural state. The mixing of neurotic organization with borderline functioning is nothing new. In the 1929, in Civilization and its Discontents, Freud makes a distinction between the inhibited adolescent who doesn't dare to attack his idealized parents and the parentless cast of fiance who becomes a delinquent. It then points out that what the two situations have in common is a lack of paternal authority. In both cases, the repressions are either too severe or insufficient, and it could be aided. Very severe and insufficient at the same time. Borderland disorder in young delinquents enables Freud to detect a similar problem in the neurotic adolescence. The borderline state in the adult would be a result of incompletion of the adolescent process of symbolization of subjective appropriation and of the overcoming of a complex mix of archaic and oedipal levels. The tension between an existential problem and the confrontation with the oedipal parents may suspend the process of subjectivation, as the French psychoanalyst Raymond Kahn has shown. Civilization discontent has become a crisis of sexuality. Sexual liberation has failed. On one hand, because neither the femininity specific to men nor the masculinity specific to women is able to achieve stability for fear and of an excess of erotic polymorphism. On the other hand, the historical evolution towards the challenging of prohibitions stokes the fear that there are no longer any prohibition at all, 
as sublimation no longer finds ideals to aim for. Our modern era, sickened by a catastrophe of the senses and lacking a direct enough relationship with the world, seems to be facing a symbolic poverty. Libido, when the crisis of the family and of collective idols have deprived of culturally valued investment objects, is swallowed up by short-circuited currents, sometimes to the point where thought invaded by unmetabolizable raw materials becomes perversified. I developed this concept in my recent book Le Surmoi Perverti, Bessexualité Psychique et Etat Limite, The Perverted Superego, Psychic Bisexuality and Borderline States, in which you can find clinical cases. The situation seems to be as follow. The inhibition of true desire which is linked to the one's individual history and unconscious edible internal objects, makes use of the complicated mechanism of borderline types of functioning instead of the simpler mechanism of repression. We are, therefore, dealing with mixed pathologies that involve both neuroses and borderline functioning, where the drive conflict within the psyche theorized by psychoanalysis, while remaining central, is nevertheless transformed into something different. It is necessary to rethink borderline states from the perspective of the complexity of this entanglement in which a primary distortion of the Oedipus complex arises as a corollary of uncertain primary identification and a pregenital incestuous sexualization. In one of his last texts, written in London just before his death, Fred gave shape to something that had perhaps always existed, but which had only recently found widespread expression. Pleasures derived from being unsatisfied, from loneliness, from the meeting that doesn't happen, from the sensation that the other is not really there, or from the sensation that genital sexuality is just a cover for two auto-eroticism using each other. He writes, A sense of guilt also originates from unsatisfied love. Like hate. In fact, we have been obliged to derive every conceivable thing from that material. Like economically self-sufficient states with their ersatz substitutes products. Let us look more closely at this terse 
statement and satisfied love, guilt, then self-sufficient defenses, perhaps a better formulation than narcissistic identity defenses or borderline states defenses. That can extend to substitute products, that is, to the modern personality myriad addictive schizoid and contradictory constructions. In another of his last jottings, Freud mentions the weakness of the power of synthesis by the ego, which goes along with a retention of the characteristic of the primary processes. To this he adds, once again, infantile sexuality serves as a prototype. He is thus encouraging us, I think, to conceive of contemporary ways of functioning as primary processes from the perspective of a sexuality that is torn between infantile fixation and a quest for substitutes. Is a subject refusing romantic involvement because he is afraid of becoming dependent, as he will readily claim to be the case? Or is he distancing himself to prevent a coalescence with incestuous fantasies that have been insufficiently repressed? In the same way, the question many adolescents ask about whether they might be homosexual, their uncertainty about their gender, or they wish to change their, their gender, may also represent their incestuous worries about unconscious wishes that are both heterosexual and homosexual. The hard-worn freedoms of the past 50 years are a response to ideals of emancipation. They must now be upheld on a case-by-case basis. That is difficult. One liberation is declared to be beneficial, another harmful without there being any clear limit between the two. Current sexual mores underestimate certain disturbance. For example, the impact of internet pornography, which fosters an illimited desubjectivated compulsion, the chaotic sexuality of adolescents, the normalization of less satisfying sex acts and the drift towards addiction, to name just a few. By a reversal into the opposite, the complexity of this situation leads to a simplification. Neopuritanism, the demand transparency and a devaluation of desire and being in love that can even lead some to say they identify as asexual. 
concerns about how to distinguish between good and bad attitudes toward relationships gives rise to a dissociated defense anxiety of sexual practices aimed principally at the venting of libidinal tension and sporadic moments that are separated from the rest of life. The word identity has become a leitmotif on the voc vocabulary of psychoanalysts, as well as in polemics about the evolution of sexualities and parentalities. And in the great political debates for and against identity politics, which promote new identities in the place of old ones. Unsuttered, it sounds identity like a magic word containing both the question and the answer. It is intoxicating for people who think they have discovered a new paradigm while it reflects only an affect. I think it is better to think in terms of a plurality of identification in which the process of subjectivation can unfold in the gap between the superficial and subjective feelings of identity and the profound logic of identification. In the history of psychoanalysis, the pathologies of subjectivation have often been blamed on identity, a notion which nowadays tends to bring together ideal ego, ego ideal and super ego into one unique ideological identity and entity. It is as if subjectively their lives no longer hung together and never would again. There was a sen in a central disturbance of what I then start to call ego identity. Erickson wrote in the 1945 about young soldiers returning from combat in the Pacific. The human problem seems to be displaced, he adds. The study of identity becomes as strategic in our times as the study of sexuality was in Freud's times. The formation of identity starts when identification says to be useful. It's a real paradox. The problem is to develop one and only one identity. When identity is plural and plastic, psychic, identity is supposed to be what is most private in oneself, while at the same time being what one is for others. And yet again, identity results from an utterly personal journey and also from history, genealogy and culture. It works in the opposite direction from psychosexual to social, 
within a circular movement that requires identities to be dissolved and claimed by turns, a new one to be created. The, the French psychoanalyst Evelyne Kestinbert analyzed this ambiguity in the 1984. Hello, it's me. Me, who? Me, well, me, Astrid. She didn't doubt for a second that I would be able to recognize her. And in fact, after a while, I learned to do so. Write Kestember about her passions. An encounter takes place from the, mo from the moment me who is given in response to the patient's wish to be the analyst only and only. This is more a precondition for existence than from identity. Astrid, an adolescent girl in love with another girl in her class, would seem to be homosexual. Kestenberg has reservation about giving a narcissistic dimension to these homo-loves right of the bat. She speaks of primary identification and primary homosexuality between mothers and daughters as a love for a person who is similar but not identical to oneself. She's right also. Very important. Our feeling of knowing what we are talking about when we say this is an adolescent boy or girl is in fact a trap because they don't even know what they are. When an adolescent is unable to identify with any parental imago, he may feel as if he is in some identity or another. There is a risk that the clinician will take at face value this notion, which is the product of, product of a confusing depressive feeling and of a build-up of micro-traumas in a too exciting environment. This makes it impossible to establish a latency phases and ideals attractive for the ego. Now, because of our interest in the bisexual psychic plasticity of the patients, childs, adolescents and adults, we, we are in danger of not being attentive enough to castration anxiety and its harmful underlying disorganization, which springs from incestuous desires that have not been adequately symbolized and liquidated. While they waver between female and male identification, they are are, in fact, even more discomfited by the contradiction between the powerful attraction of genitality and the persist persistent charms of infantile polymorphisms. Psychic 
bisexuality always leans more towards one side than the other. What we call identity pathologies begin, I think, with this imbalance, the feeling of being more on the male or more on the female side. We hear the different ways that patients vary between femininity or masculinity. We see femininity between the maleness of femininity and the femaleness of femininity, etc. We are obliged to use these words since they are not the only ones we have. The male part of the ego is in dialogue with his female part as it imagines this part. The French psychoanalyst André Green writes, It is not the sex of the other that is represented in bisexuality, but the idea that one has of the other's sex from the perspective of one's own sex and what's own sex, sex perceives in the gaze of the other sex on him. The part, for example, of the man that feels like a woman can tell from anatomical experience that is a man body. And the same is true of the part of the woman that feels like a man and is informed by by its own sensorial experience of a body. Psychic bisexuality, an organizing system, is often overwhelmed by drive activity in which Eros and Thanatos tend to come apart in a polyerotic narcissism that can easily give way to purely addictive solutions. When the genital emergence of the puberty process she weakens infantile sexuality, the adolescent is prey to invasive bisexual fantasies. A frequent outcome of this is a desexualization. An adolescent boy feels a feminine softness in his penis as he masturbates to modulate the violence of his phallic drives. Or an adolescent girl plays a male friendship card as a way of counter-investing the force of her drives. These reversals into the opposite show that adolescents are afraid of attacking or destroying their masculine and feminine internal objects. An intentionally neutral unisex gender is one way of responding to this fear. Uh, hypersexualized presentation also is just as symptomatic of it. The persistence of the infantile desiring mode in the midst of the puberty process will keep renating excitation. 
This polymorphic compulsion may wear into experiences of adhering in fantasy to the primary object. Now I can say, the Oedipus complex is structurally distorted. In the classic profile, where it organizes, uh, as we know, the life of the subject submitted to magnificent but neuroticizing conflicts, and in the profile where from the very beginning it goes astray into an unstable identification, alienated in the desires of unconscious parental projections. The rediscovery of the object in puberty that Freud speaks of reactualizes the archaic problematic in which the ego no longer knows if what it is feeling comes from itself or comes from the other. When this kind of regression occurs, how can we guard against the danger of a desidealization depression? The wall is oedipal, but it is weakened and attacked by infantile sexual elements that are interwoven with a deadly regression. The quantitative impact of two strong drives on the immature ego fosters regression. Freud describes a young child's early patient from his mother's. He writes, Everything in sphere of this first attachment to the mother seemed to me so difficult to grasp in analysis, so grave with age and shadowy and almost impossible to revivify. That is was as if it had succumbed to an especially inexorable repression. We see that the incestuous desire cannot be represented because it is excessiveness in his attack in South and give rise to repression and also, I would add, sometimes even incites a desire to disappear in the repression fails. I suggest that we refer to this outcome in which romantic desire are subverted by the infantile sexual desperately clinging to the elusive primary object as a distorted or deformed Oedipus complex. There is a regression of romantic desire which is pregenitalized. It remains sexual but cannot be easily distinguished from narcissistic incestuality, which mainly involves sticking to the primordial other in a specular phenomenon. The Oedipus complex that has become anti-Oedipal may be interpreted, and the psychotic potential contained and sometimes even liquidated. If 
If we are able to hear in the masculine-feminine interval the ravage, the ravage of a failure of the pleasure principle. I give several examples of this in my 2021 book, Le Surmoi Perverti, Bisexualité Psychique et à Limite, The Perverted Superego, Psychic Bisexuality and Borderline States. This is indeed the parent and child mirrored fascination for partial objects that the French psychoanalyst Racamier speaks of, but it is also the Oedipus complex in the Freudian sense. For it is the objectal sexual excess itself which generates harmful narcissistic stoppage causing desires to regress into pregenital excitability, sometimes to the point of breakdown, the fracture and collapse that Moses and Egli Lofer have described so well. Then a psychotic seeming confusion gives rise to a defensive splitting that does not provide enough containment for the excitation regressively projective onto the primary object. This harmful disruption within the drives will in the end crystallize into a tragic structure in which the ego gets lost and lose his object somewhere between a depressive tendency and ferocious aggression. To keep being a subject, he accepts the damage that has been done to his ego, then transforms the aggression of which he has been a victim into a motor for his own thinking. When the Oedipal structures becomes too distorted by the black lash from flows in repressions, we then move from analytic work to the treatment of psychotized patient. The distorted Oedipus complex starkly reveals a psychotic twisting of suit and perception concealed behind narcissistic and addictive defenses. Analysis is still possible. As long we adapt our method so that our attention as listeners is more sustained and our interpretive style is more dialogic. Through projection, this kind of patient is able to deposit in the psyche of the therapist the strange combination of obligatory enjoyment and the renunciation of drive activity that is characteristic of the distorted Oedipus complex. The therapist must therefore submit to an intense elaboration of what has not been linked enough by his interlocutor. This Oedipus complex that is deformed, distorted, and even twisted out of shape sheds some light of, on a situation in which 
pregenitality launches edible seconds. There are intertwined situations which, in the child, the adolescent, and the adult, partake of both the narcissistic ancestral that comes close to indifferentiation and the crudest sexual desire. I am here talking about a poorly triangulated primary Oedipus complex permitted, but what infantile sexuality has retained of native perversion. It normally dissipates in course of development, but may reappear at any time. Thanks you for your attention.